If you travel, you know how to really go off the grid. Like no cell service in your room, off the grid. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths, sound baths, and ice baths. Because when you set up your out-of-office, you mean it. Because when you're the escape artist, vacation is all about resting, meditating, drinking water, and minding your own businessing. The Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Learn more at go.amex slash you know. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Think positive. Just get over it. Avoid toxic negativity. But can we really manipulate our emotions like that? Harvard psychologist and best-selling author Dr. Susan David explains emotional agility, a revolutionary way of approaching difficult emotions. Hello and welcome back to Savvy Psychologist. I'm your host, Dr. Jade Wu. Every week, I'll help you meet life's challenges with evidence-based research, a sympathetic ear, and zero judgment. Now, one of the topics that comes up most with my clients, no matter who they are or what they're struggling with, is the question of how to handle difficult emotions. I've seen many people work hard to manage or get over their emotions, treating them as if they're dials on a control panel that they can calibrate just right, if only they tried hard enough. But what if there's actually a whole different approach to emotions that doesn't require you know, wrestling with them. That's where the idea of emotional agility comes in. Today, I talked to the psychologist who coined the term emotional agility, Dr. Susan David. She's one of the world's leading management thinkers and an award-winning Harvard Medical School psychologist. Her Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change and Thrive in Work and Life is heralded as a Management Idea of the Year and winner of the Thinker's 50 Breakthrough Idea Award. Dr. David's TED Talk on the topic went viral with over 1 million views in her first week of release. Today, Dr. David shares with us fascinating takeaways and tips, as well as a few brilliant metaphors about the concept of emotional agility through the lens of her own experiences as a teenager who lost her father to cancer, as well as research into the science of emotions. So without further ado, Dr. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So let's jump in with the question that's most on my mind. I'm really, really curious about uh, the term emotional agility. Of course, you wrote a book on this topic and you gave a TED Talk on it. Could you just start out by telling us what this refers to? Well, the headline is that emotional agility is the critical skills that are needed for us to be with ourselves in healthy ways. So when we break that down, What that really means is the ability to be with our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories in ways that are compassionate, in ways that are curious so that we learn from them, 
and also in ways that are courageous because often we face into ourselves or our situations in a way that requires us to take courage. So emotional agility is really about being healthy with ourselves in these ways so that we can connect with the reality of our present situation and take values-connected steps as we move forward. Wow, I love that. So compassionate, curious, and courageous. Um, and those are not necessarily terms that we hear a lot about when we think about coping or think about uh, the sort of trend in positive psychology of wanting to really cultivate positive thoughts and positive optimism and being grateful and positive emotions. Yeah. On the other hand, banishing negative thoughts and emotions. So how does emotional agility uh, reckon with this trend of positive thinking and banishing negative thoughts? Maybe before I even go into that, you know, one thing that's really informed my work is my own background. Um, as I think for so many people, we get driven by things that we find interesting in our own lives. So I grew up in uh, apartheid South Africa. I was a white South African in a country and community that was basically committed to denial, you know, to not seeing the other person. And so from a young age, I became interested in these ideas. You know, do you just pretend that things are great, even though you know that they're not? Or do you face into the reality of what's going on for you and for the people that you love and individuals who are around you in society? Then when I was 15 years old, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I recall after he died going to school, he died on a Friday, and I recall going to school on the Monday. And it was this idea that I just needed to get on with it, to be positive and, uh, you know, to do what our culture tells us to do, which is to face into the fact that everything will be all right and you'll be okay and everything happens for a reason and all of these things that the culture and anywhere we go on Instagram or beyond tells us we should just, um, you know, kind of ignore things because everything's going to be okay or everything is okay. We should pretend it is. And, you know, I became the master of being okay. Um, I didn't drop a single grade. I was asked how I was doing and I would always just shrug and say, you know, I'm, I'm okay. Um, but in truth, I was struggling because what happens when we push aside our difficult thoughts and feelings is we don't get rid of them. They come back. Um, in my TED talk, I talk about this delicious piece of chocolate cake in the refrigerator. When you try not to think about it, the greater its hold on you. So, you know, the fact is that reality will always have its way and internal pain always comes out. And for me, that landed up being expressed in, um, as a young girl, binging and purging. You know, so many young girls do trying to control their environment, but trying to control their bodies. And a couple of months after I had really descended into this real struggle with myself, an eighth grade English teacher handed out a blank notebook and she said, write, tell the truth, write like no one is reading. And she handed out this notebook to the class, but it was really, I felt, directed at me. She knew my background and what was going on for me. And she was looking me straight on as she did this. And really what this did is it started a journey into this core question, which now circles back to what you asked, which is, 
you know, what does it take internally in the way we deal with our thoughts, our emotions and our stories that helps us to thrive? Because we live in a culture that tells us to be calm and carry on, be positive, positive vibes only, everything happens for a reason. But when we do this, when we push aside the reality of our human experience, we actually uh, falter. And the reason we falter is because we develop an internal struggle with ourselves. Instead of being able to face the situation, we now are spending time and energy trying to pretend the situation doesn't exist and to rationalize or hustle is one of the terms that I use or struggle with our feelings. And so a lot of what exists in popular culture and even in psychology about this idea of positivity being some kind of holy grail and happiness being something that we should all strive for as as a goal is actually not supported by the research. We know that when people set happiness as a goal, they actually tend to become less happy over time because happiness is not something that we have as a goal. Happiness is something that is experienced as a byproduct of living a life that feels coherent and values connected and in which we are in touch with ourselves, in which we feel that we ourselves love who we are. We might not like every aspect of ourselves, but we love who we are and we can come to ourselves in healthy ways. And so that's really the foundation of my work. I'm not anti-happiness, but really, you know, what do we know? We know that our emotions, all of our emotions are helpful that all of our emotions evolved to help us to adapt and to thrive, that our emotions contain signals to the things that we care about. And when we push aside our difficult emotions, we don't develop the skills to deal with the world as it is. Instead, we're trying to deal with a world that we wish could be. That is so interesting. First of all, thank you so much for sharing your story. That is a really poignant story. And I can definitely see how those experiences would drive you to think about living a more truthful life and being more in touch with your emotions. So um, first of all, that notebook, was that helpful for you in the end? So it was remarkable. I did away with all of these ideas of how I should feel and instead started to face into how I did feel. And for me, that was pain and loss and anger, regret, you know, all of the things that come with grief. And what I found over time is that it was that singular experience, that process. It was so simple, but as so many simple acts are, it was a revolution for me. It was a silent revolution because it was the revolution of facing into myself And it was also the revolution of starting to recognize that so much of what we see in our everyday experience, whether it's on Instagram, where we're told to, you know, be only with people who are positive or there's this idea of toxic negativity. So it was revolutionary for me because it started to really help me to recognize that what enabled me to see myself through the experience in a way that didn't just allow me to put my life back together, but actually to develop an internal sense that I have with me to this day, which is that I'm resilient, you know, that I'm resilient and I feel it in such a 
profound way, that that was really enabled by the writing process. And there's a lot of research that basically supports this idea that when we go away from the notion of these messy, you know, difficult feelings and experiences, and we start to put them in language, we start to process them, you know, you're writing them down in a journal, you are talking to a therapist, you talking to someone who's a really insightful, wise friend. You're not venting with the person, rather you generating a sense of insight about your experience, that this actually is what allows us to move forward. And, you know, there's a lot of scientific research to support this idea that when we face into our difficult emotions, even when those difficult emotions are supposedly negative, that we come out of it very often with a sense of insight and meaning. That doesn't mean you wanted the bad experience to happen. You know, it doesn't mean you wanted the relationship to end or to lose your job or no, we didn't want those experiences. But the experience happened and we can face into that and we can come out of it in a way that has enabled us to learn about ourselves, our priorities, um, we've nurtured very often our relationships and we've got some some meaning that's been generated out of that. And that's very, very well documented in the scientific research. I really love the idea of facing into the experience and allowing yourself to actually allow the experience and allow your feelings and emotions. And And you also mentioned the term resilience. And I love how those two concepts can be connected, the idea of resilience and the idea of actually facing your experiences. So this is resonating a lot because it's making me think of another way in which people often use the word resilience. And so I used to work with cancer patients and those with infertility. And these folks are going through a really, really difficult time very much out of their control. And the way that they often spoke of resilience was about fighting cancer or getting over infertility or getting over loss of a baby. And it it just strikes me that the way you're talking about resilience is not that way. It's not about getting over or, or forgetting about or fighting it. Is that right? Yeah. So the way that I think of resilience is resilience is actually about integration. When we've got a part of ourselves, of our history, that feel separate from us. We maybe avoid it or when we think about it, we get so stuck in it that it actually takes over our day or our lives and we're now not living our lives, we're living in our heads. This is not integration. Integration is essentially being able to sew the quilt of that experience into the larger pattern of our lives and to say, you know, this is an experience that I had, but it's not definitional of me. It's not definitional in that it's not going to take over me, but it's also not something that, you know, when we push something aside and we spend a whole lot of time trying not to uh, deal with that, that in its own way is defining you. And so for me, you know, very much when I think about emotional agility and what the work is that we need to do as human beings, it's about recognizing that when we fight, rationalize, push aside, avoid our difficult experiences or our difficult emotions, 
what that does is it leads us into a context in which we are defined by the fight. Instead, when we come into our experiences in ways that are accepting, compassionate, curious, courageous, you know, what do I need to do in the situation? Instead of being defined, you know, by the fighting, we actually get defined by how we choose to just be with ourselves and to be with that. And so what that does is it allows us to have the energy and the psychological resource to actually be in the world in a way that is instead of a fighting way, rather it's wholehearted, it's connected. And and yes, you know, human beings, what is resilience? Resilience is about being in the world as it is in a way that is whole and healthy. Often when we get stuck in an experience or we get stuck in an emotion, we say something like, you know, I am sad, I am angry. And when you say something like, I am sad, what you are basically doing is defining yourself by the sadness. You know, I am, every single part of me is sad right now. And when you do that, you, if you imagine a sky, you know, you become the cloud. You know, the cloud is the cloud of sadness. The cloud is the cloud of anger. But we are all big enough. We are capacious enough and beautiful enough and complex enough as human beings to have a full range of experiences and a full range of emotions. And so you are not the cloud. You are the sky. You know, you are the sky. And if we can develop emotional agility skills, and we can talk about what some of the specifics are of what can be helpful to people, what you do is you pull back from, again, that experience being definitional into something that is much more healthy. And I mean this both with more traumatic experiences, but even everyday experiences. When we every day say things like, um, I'm being undermined in the meeting, so I'm going to shut down, or I'm a bad parent, and we wrap ourselves in these difficult emotions, there's no space in that for us to bring other parts of ourselves, our values, our intentions, our wisdom, who we want to be in the situation. And so what we start to do is we start to, basically our stories or our emotions become directives. I was angry and so I left the room when my husband started in on the finances. Or, you know, I'm a bad parent and so I now wrap myself in the guilt. Or I'm being undermined in the meeting, so I'm going to shut down. But of course, we own our actions, you know. Our thoughts don't own our actions. Our emotions don't own our actions. We as human beings own our actions. So one of the greatest uh, taking back Uh, capacities that we have of human beings, the way that we take back our power is to actually face into these experiences and then to ask ourselves, you know, who do I want to be right now? Like, what are my values telling me? And they're incredibly powerful strategies that we can use to do that. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. So what are some of those strategies when someone finds themselves hooked or stuck and they feel like they are the cloud and they maybe rationally know, oh, I remember Dr. David said one time that I am not the cloud. But then then once they recognize that, what are some uh, actionable steps that they can take to at least begin the process of becoming the sky or feeling like they are? So how do we become the sky? The first way we become the sky is by showing up to our difficult experiences. What I've found in my work is that a lot of people either bottle their emotions, they try to push them aside, rationalize them, or even judge them. They say things like, you know, I shouldn't be sad. There are many people worse off than me, or um, at least I've got a job, even if I'm unhappy in my job. So a lot of times people bottle their emotions or sometimes what we do is we brood on our emotions. We get stuck in them. So the first part of emotional agility is uh, really being gently accepting of what it is that you're feeling. You know, this is how I feel. Like, this is what's going on for me. We, We don't need to walk outside when it's raining and say, gee, you know, it's raining and I wish it wouldn't rain and it's terrible that it rains every day and why does it always rain every time I want to go outside? Instead, you know, we can walk outside and go, it's raining, which is gentle acceptance to use the the weather, you know, continued weather metaphor. So gentle acceptance is the first critical part of emotional agility because paradoxically we can only be healthy and whole as human beings when we accept the world as it is, not as we wish it to be. And that includes our inner world. A second part of emotional agility is compassion, is critical. So we live in a world that would have us believe that we are in a never-ending Iron Man or Iron Woman competition, where, you know, we've got to be fit and healthy and wear wonderful clothes and have a good job and, you know, be a perfect parent. And there's, there's all of the stuff that tells us what we need to be. But often the most important thing that we need to be is kind to ourselves, recognizing that we are doing the best we can with who we are, with the resources that we have in life. And a lot of times people misunderstand self-compassion. They think that self-compassion is about being weak or lazy or lying to yourself. But actually self-compassion, what it does when you're kind to yourself is you create a space for yourself that is gentle. And it's in that gentle security that we as individuals are able then to take more risks, 
to put our hand up for more difficult projects, to um, start that business that we always wanted to start. Because we know that if we supposedly fail in that, we will still love ourselves. And so actually, paradoxically, people who are kind to themselves land up being less weak, less lazy, they're more honest with themselves, and they are more likely to achieve their goals. So this acceptance and compassion. Then another thing that I would say is they're very practical strategies to think about when it comes to our emotions specifically. For instance, when we say things like, I am sad, I am angry, as I've already referenced, we are defining ourselves by the emotion. But we are not the emotion. So what do we want to do instead? We we need to develop the skills to recognize our thoughts. I'm not good enough. You know, I always give in when the stakes are high. So these are difficult thoughts we might have. Emotions, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm stressed. Or stories, you know, some of our stories were written on our mental chalkboards in grade three. Stories about whether we are creative, good enough, what kind of love we deserve. And we are hooked when these thoughts, emotions, and stories are driving our action. The way we become unhooked from them is to start recognizing them for what they are. They are thoughts, they are emotions, and they are stories. They are not fact, they are not directives, and we are under no obligation to listen to them. What we know is we can show up to our emotions which is that acceptance and compassion that I spoke about earlier. But we can also step out of them. Stepping out is when you start to observe your thoughts, your emotions and stories for what they are. So quite simply, what does this look like? Instead of I am being undermined, I'm having the thought that I'm being undermined. Instead of I'm so angry, I am angry. I'm noticing the feeling that I'm angry. I'm noticing that this is my you're not good enough story. When we start to do this very simple, but again, powerful linguistic um, decoupling of ourselves from the thought emotional story by simply noticing it for what it is. I'm noticing this is my feeling. I'm noticing my thought. I'm noticing the story. We start creating space between us and the experience. And of course, in that space, we can start choosing who we want to be. Another really important aspect of stepping out is to know that when we use very big labels to describe what we're feeling, so we say, I am stressed, what this does is it starts to color everything by the stress. But we know from research called uh, emotion granularity or emotion differentiation that when we are more accurate with what it is that we're feeling, when we move beyond the I am stressed and we say I'm overwhelmed or I'm noticing that I'm exhausted, this thing that I'm calling stress is actually feeling unsupported. So when we label our emotions in a more granular way, What it actually allows us to do is to understand the reality of what's causing that emotion for us and to start putting in place then strategies of what we need to do. So we move from I'm stressed into I'm exhausted 
And what I need to do is engage in more self-care. We move away from, you know, I'm stressed into I am bored. I'm busy in my job, but actually I'm bored. And this allows me to start understanding that there are things that I can start putting in place, whether that's a tweak within the job or a tweak that allows me to expand the breadth of my knowledge or my skills or experience. It allows me to start moving forward effectively with the knowledge that I've now gained from my emotions. Wow, I'm really excited to uh, put some of these actions and metaphors into practice. I really like the idea of uh, using language as a tool and using language to label our experiences and using that process to help us understand on a granular level what we're experiencing so that we can face it, so that we can use compassion. Absolutely. You know, the question is, for what purpose? You know, why are we trying to like understand our emotions? Why are we trying to label them? Like, for what purpose? And the purpose is, the purpose is that our emotions, even and especially the difficult emotions, our emotions contain signposts to the things that we care about. So I'm not just suggesting that we do this to get over our difficult emotions. What I'm actually suggesting is something far more than that. What I'm actually suggesting is something far more than that, which is that our emotions contain these incredibly beautiful beacons to things that we care about. And this is what helps us to be adaptive and agile. So for instance, if you're feeling bored in your job, that boredom might be a signpost that you value learning and that you don't have enough of it. If you feel guilty as a parent. Again, emotions are data, but not directives. Okay. So what are the data that might be in the, I feel guilty as a parent? The data might be, I value presence and connectedness with my children. And I don't feel that I've got enough of it right now. Even in grief, grief is I often think of grief as being love looking for a home. So when we experience grief and, you know, if we had to write on a post-it note, you know, I'm grieving, I'm sad, I'm noticing this grief. And we flipped over the post-it note and we sought to understand what is the value that that grief is pointing to. The value is that you have loved And that may be actually creating space where you are actively remembering and thinking of the person is profoundly powerful and just what you need right now. So it's not even just this idea that we need a kind of, you know, very old versions or or thoughts about emotional intelligence were these ideas that we need to control our emotions, that it's this amygdala hijack that we need to get over. And what I'm suggesting is something entirely different, which is that our emotions are beautiful and they help us to thrive and adapt in a world that is ever-changing. And they help us as human beings to recognize that we as human beings are ever-changing, that our relationships and our needs and wants change. 
And that something that five years ago was working for us might not be working now. And there's no shame in that. If we simply face into that with grace and dignity and try to understand it, we can then move forward. Emotions are beautiful. I think if there's one thing to take away from this conversation, that's certainly a good summary. And I I really love the idea of being compassionate and curious with our emotions rather than trying to get over them or to fight them. And I, I think that's such a powerful message. And thank you so much, Dr. David, for talking to us about emotional agility. Any parting words of wisdom for how to thrive in these uncertain times when, uh, when things are unpredictable and all everything around us seems to struggle? Well, I think that the main thing that we can bring with us to these circumstances is that yes, the world is unpredictable and that so often our suffering is directly proportional to how much we try to control stuff that's uncontrollable. So the more we try to control, you know, what one or another politician says or, you know, whether someone slighted you at work, you know, the greater our level of suffering. So what's really important for us as human beings is to be wise to what it is that we try to control. We cannot control what other people do or say. Um, And also we cannot and should not try to control our thoughts and our feelings. Our thoughts and feelings exist for a reason. We have thousands of them every single day. And just because you had a so-called negative thought doesn't mean you're gonna manifest a so-called negative reality. It It just doesn't work that way. And so when we instead just um, start saying to ourselves, you know, there's so much out of control, but what can we control? We can control how we respond. We can control how we connect with people. Um, We can control the choices that we make. Is my response serving me? Is it bringing me closer to being the person, the parent, the spouse, the partner, the human being that I most want to be. When we ask that question, we take back our agency, we take back our power, and it's not taken back by trying to white knuckle our way through life. Because, you know, right now in life, it's not the time for perfection. It's the time for simple progress, whatever that means to you. It's not the time for white knuckled grit it's time for grace. And it's also the time for us to wisely choose what it is that we let go of. Thank you. This is really wonderful advice. And I think this is something that we can all start to think about and start to cultivate towards this idea of better acceptance and more um, emotional agility. Thank you so much for talking with us, Dr. David. I wish you the the best of emotional agility in these trying times. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful to speak. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at QDT Savvy Psych and at Jade Wu PhD. If you'd like psychology tips delivered straight to your inbox, subscribe to the Savvy Psychologist newsletter. You can also make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Savvy Psychologist is audio engineered by Steve Rickyberg and edited by Karen Hertzberg.
As always, Savvy Psychologist is strictly for informational purposes and does not substitute for mental health care from a licensed professional. Thanks so much for joining me. I'll see you next week for a happier, healthier mind. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. 